The reading this morning comes from the book of Joel, chapter 1, verse 1 to 20. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion and fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth. Grieve for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The wine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before the God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture, even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness and flames have burnt up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness." Let's pray. Dear Father, as we come to this book, uh, we ask that you would speak to us. And as we leave this place in, in, in half an hour's time, we ask that we would understand your message that Joel spoke to your people back then, but also the message you speak to us today. In prayers in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we uncover the whole book of Joel, three chapters long, and we just heard the first chapter really brilliantly read, uh, read by Edith. But I would love everyone to have 
a Bible in their hands so they can actually glance through as we cover each chapter. So I've actually asked Paul to have a whole stack of Bibles in his arms. If you would like a Bible, church Bible, just for the next sermon, uh, this next half hour in the sermon, can you put your hand up and we'll deliver your Bible because I would really love you to be able to read along with me. This is a kind of a different sermon. We're going to cover the whole material. And so, um, yeah, you do well to follow along. There's a few more down the side here, Paul. Thank you. It's a short book, uh, three chapters long, and we don't know when it was written. Uh, Joel never explains the context or the specific sin or the king or the time frame when he writes this book. It probably is, uh, well, I think it's probably before the, the southern kingdom has been exiled under, under the kind of invading Babylonians. But then again, it could be written as late as after the exile uh, in the last few years of the Old Testament. But what we do know is that the strong image of this book is the locust. It's the book of the locust in many ways. Joel's the prophet of the locust. And you saw that uh, little BBC production there, because maybe you haven't really dealt with locusts much in, in your life. You know, I have the occasional locust that we find in our garden. It doesn't really describe, does it, the panic of a plague of mass proportion sweeping through your land. And so as I read back in chapter 1 again, I want you to feel what a farmer would feel like as they hear about this locust swarm. So you've got your Bible there, open it up. Joel 1, verse 2 to 4. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you have lived in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children's the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locust have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the younger locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. That's an image of damage. And uh, locusts are still a huge problem in our world. There was a huge swarm from 2019 through to 2022 in the Horn of Africa. Uh, the, the plague got to proportions where they started measuring in, in the hundreds of billions of insects. And one, just one of those swarms could consume in a single day what 40,000 people would consume in a year. And so uh, when kind of locust dust had settled in 2022, what had happened was that 23 countries had been affected and 20.2 million people had uh, facing severe shortages of food. So it's still a problem today. Nothing can stop them. And that's the image. See, what, what, what Joel is doing is he's actually reflecting on a, on a locust plague that's happened or happening. He's saying, look at this locust. Look at the damage they're doing. And they're stripping the promised land bare. Glance through your, your Bible, verses 5 to 11. And it's just this description of a desolate landscape. Here, this beautiful place that God had given his people is left looking uh, nothing like that, like looking like a disaster zone. Uh, farmers despair because they've got nothing left to grow. Priests despair. Why? There's not even any grain left to do grain offerings. They, they have no grain to use in the temple anymore. The, the drunkards are told to wake up, wake up and weep. Why? They've run out of things to drink. No vine equals no wine. And so... Even the drunkards grieve the, the lack of alcohol that the, the country, it's, a, it's alcohol shortage they're facing. Um, that would certainly wake Australia up, wouldn't it? I think, of, I think of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 10, right? 
God sends plagues upon Egypt. It's the eighth plague, I think, when locusts are sent on the land of Egypt. God says, I will judge Pharaoh's, you know, his lack of faith in me, his, his, his thought that he can um, kind of conquer me and slave my people. I'll judge them with locusts. And what you realize when you read the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 10, is that when God is against a nation, uh, they should tremble. And we know as Christians, when God is for us, who can be against us, right? But when God is against us, will heaven help you? Because you have nowhere to turn. And that's the image here. God is against Judah. God is against Judah, and he's, he's sending this plague of locusts. And so as this nation suffers under you know, a very physical swarm of locusts, this is, this is a historic moment, Joel doesn't see an agricultural problem. He doesn't get on the phone uh, to CIRSO, or in Australia, we've got the uh, Australian Plague Locust Commission who deal with all the swarms in Australia. He doesn't do that because he doesn't see an agricultural problem. What does he see? He sees a spiritual problem. This, this swarm of locusts destroying Judah is because of a spiritual issue. And so the response is repentance. You'll see it there, verse 13 to 20. And the last part that Edith read, read to us is a call for repentance. We're going to pick it up at verse 14. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders, all who live in the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. And so we have this plague of locusts and, and Joel says, look at this plague and repent. If you want to see uh, the land restored, if you want to see this locust go, then you need to repent before God. He's poured this plague out upon you and will only go after you come back to Him. And so that's Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1 is Joel taking a historic moment, a, a huge, disastrous plague of locusts, and pointing out the fact that this locust reveals God's judgment on a sinful nation. Joel 1, God brings judgment on sinners, so repent. And so the nation of Judah is called to repent. That's Joel 1. Let's go to Joel chapter 2. The day of the Lord is coming, repent. Now, end of verse, end of chapter 1, or near the end, we had a phrase used for the first time in Joel. Verse 15, in chapter 1, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That, the, that phrase, the day of the Lord, will become the next image in the book of Joel. So the first chapter is this image of a locust horde that has come. Joel says, think of the locusts that invade the land. Now I want you to think of the day of the Lord, because the day of the Lord will be like that. The horror and terror you had as you watched your nation you stripped bare of all vegetation was a taste of the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? This phrase we're going to hear right, right throughout the rest of, of Joel. Well, the phrase, the, the, the day of Yahweh, that's it, what it's actually literally says, the day of Yahweh, is the time when Yahweh will do two things. Uh, the Lord will come and He will punish sin and He will restore His people 
and his place. So that's what the day of the Lord is. The day of Yahweh is when, when God will return to punish sin and to restore. So it's, it's a day of two things, very different things. One is punishment and one is restoration and renewal. And uh, you've got to kind of work out which side of that balance you're going to fall on. And that really matters, doesn't it? And Joel makes the plague of locusts the image of the judgment of the day of the Lord. He says to the, the nation of Judah, think of that locust. Think of the terror. Think of the destruction. Capture that emotion. See, that was just a taste of what will come on this mighty day. Let's read Joel 2. We're going to read from verse 1. And no longer is it physical locusts, swarms of billions. We are now using the same metaphor, but we're talking about the army of God, the cosmic army of God coming. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor will ever be in the ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, the flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Think about locusts, a swarm of locusts. You saw the video. What are some ways you describe a swarm, 100 million locusts coming across? Um, one of the biggest swarms in the Horn of Africa was 60 kilometers by 40 kilometers. So straight cloud, can't hardly see the sky of locusts from somewhere like Smithfield to Babinda and out from the coast to past Mariba, nothing but locusts. How would you describe that? Well, you'd say it's unstoppable. There's nothing you can do in the face of an army like that. It's everywhere. You cannot hide. They'll climb over every plant, every bush, every garden. Locusts don't care about borders. No one escapes. They bring devastation. When they're gone, nothing is left, and they bring fear. And Joel says, take that, those feelings and thoughts, that is what will happen when God comes. He is unstoppable. You cannot fight him. He is inescapable. All people will face him. He is devastating. The earth will be scorched, and people will be destroyed. He is terrifying. All will tremble before him. Verse 11, chapter 2. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, the mi and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? Well, we already know the answer to that. Chapter 1, when a physical plague of locusts came, what was the instruction? Repent. Now we talk about this spiritual army that will come and bring judgment. What is what is, how do, you, how do you avoid it? How do you endure it? Repent. It's the same message. Repent. And so from verses 12 to 32 of chapter 2, this whole section, if you look in your Bible and flick through it, you'll see it's, it's this poetry about repentance and salvation and blessing. Let's go to it, verse 12 and 13. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and fasting, and weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, 
slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. How do you avoid the day of the Lord's judgment and find yourself in the day of the Lord's renewal? You go from judgment to renewal by repentance. You repent and hide in God. And so while you can hear the message of Joel, if you have ears to hear the message of Joel, the good news is there's still time. There's still time to repent. There's still time to be saved. There's still time to avoid the day of the Lord's judgment. We are to rend our hearts. I don't think I've ever used the word rend in any conversation in my life. I have to actually look it up in a dictionary. Rend. Do you know what rend means? To tear. There you go. To tear your heart. Tear your heart, not your garment. The Jewish people were very good at expressing sadness, though sometimes it was a show. I think of Mark's gospel and Jesus comes to heal Jairus' daughter. There at the house, uh, what does he find? Grievous, people mourning. And yet when he says the child's asleep, they laugh. They're not really brokenhearted. They're there as professional grievers. And even now in the Jewish culture, uh, there is a tradition of tearing your clothing before a funeral. Tearing, men would tear their, they still tear their lapels. Um, I did not tear my lapel at, uh, at Edna's funeral yes, on, on Friday, though I was, I was grieving. But the, the tradition, Jewish tradition, is at a funeral, you will tear your lapel of your shirt to say, this is my heart. My heart is torn. The problem is, it's actually easier to tear a physical lapel than it often is to tear our actual hearts, right? We can put on a show, and God says, I don't care about your clothing, I care about your hearts. I don't care if you tear your clothing to pieces. I care if your heart is torn to pieces over your sin. And so part of repentance is remorsefulness, isn't it? It's to feel that deep sense of guilt, to know the pain we've cost God. See, the Christian is not just to know God's thoughts. You know, we don't just read the Bible to know the mind of God. We read the Bible to know the heart of God. I think in evangelical churches, we're often very good at trying to understand the mind of God. We're very bad at understanding the heart of God. It's as we feel the pain of God when we sin that we feel that deep sense of remorse. It becomes less intellectual and more um, a heartfelt, emotional response. I think of um, you know, youth criminals who've, who've robbed houses and then under some programs, the police will take them and take them back to the house they've robbed when they've been charged guilty and to be introduced to the owners of the house for the first time. To hear the story, their heartbreak of replacing beloved possessions, the, the, the horror of waking at night having memories of someone being in their house robbing them. And it's as these delinquent youth hear real stories. Their crime becomes less of something in their heads and something in their hearts. They see the pain that they've cost. And that's what we need to do as Christians when we repent. We, we feel the cost of our sin to God. And we can just read our Bibles to hear that. Read through the Bible, through the Old Testament, and you'll hear the cry of God in the face of His people's sin. And so it goes into our hearts, and we think, oh God, what have I cost you? I've cost you your son. And we rend our hearts, we tear our hearts in sadness. And we come back to Him. And, and there's a sense of urgency, isn't there? Verse 15, chapter 2 still. 
blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call sacred nation, gather them together. He describes all these different people. He says, gather the elders, gather the children, gather those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Joel says, now is the time. There's no, now, adults, elderly, children, infants, find the couple on the honeymoon, drag them out of bed, tell them to get decent and get in the church to repent. (laughs) Don't wait a week before they've kind of finished their honeymoon. There's no time. It is now. Repentance is urgent and it still is urgent. We do not know when our Lord will return. It could be after this service. Or maybe we'll go to meet him on the way home if we have a car accident. We do not know when God will will meet us face to face and will stand before his judgment throne. And so now is the moment to repent. And that's what we, um, that's why we have big Christmas programs planned, right? I think I probably heard about some of them last week. We have a a, a big season of Christmas events. We have a kids club. Why? Because we want to see kids repent and be brought into God's kingdom. We want to see adults come to our Christmas dinner and or our carols and repent and come into God's kingdom. We have a Christmas morning tea for our more senior members of our congregation and our community so that the elderly will repent before it's too late. We want to see all people come. Now, our theme this year is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we're going to follow the angels as they, as they proclaim their message through the gospel of that first Christmas. And, and you might know the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know the next line? Yes, next line. God and sinners. That's our message, isn't it? That's the message of Joel. God and sinners can be reconciled now but not on the day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, it'll be too late. But now, now is the day where you can be saved. You know, I remember hearing, when is the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. What's the second best day to plant a tree? Today. When's the best time to repent? 20 years ago. What's the second best day to repent? Today. Do not wait. And that's what we're going to do. We sung it, didn't we? We sung it in our first song. By faith, the church was called to go in the power of the Spirit to the lost, to deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. That's the anthem of our church, isn't it? We sung that anthem this morning. And that is the era we live in. Joel begins that proclamation. Repent now. Well, what happens? Well, 800 years go by. And... uh, and Joel's promised, you know, he's, he's promised the day of the Lord is coming. Um, God is going to come. He's going to bring this judgment. He's going to also bring renewal. He, and Joel had said, you know, there'd be a new era, a new covenant, a new promise. God is going to work in people's hearts. He's going to help them repent. But 800 years goes by and, and nothing. And then Jesus is born. And Jesus is crucified. And Jesus is resurrected. And then he's ascended. And we find a ragtag band of disciples and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And a crowd gathers, because they're speaking in different languages of other nations. And Peter, who's just finished denying Jesus, now stands and he preaches the first sermon of the New Testament church. And he, and he says, fellow Jews, and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to, what you, to you, listen carefully, these are not drunk people, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, what you've, 
heard was spoken by the prophet Joel. And I'm going to read Joel because he quotes in the very first sermon of the New Testament, he quotes Joel chapter 2, verse 38 to 32, 28 to 32. Joel said this, and Peter quotes it. Afterward, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit on those in those days. I will show wonders in the heaven and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So what do we learn? Well, first, we learn that the day of the Lord has come. It's, it's here and continuing. It's begun with Jesus' death, when the sun went dark and, and kind of God thundered. But it continues right now through until Christ returns. We're in this era of mission as the day of the Lord is played out. And so now is the time to repent, which is exactly what Peter will end his sermon with. At the end, you'll say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ and for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was roughly 800 years from, Jesus, from Joel to, to Peter. Now it's been something like 2,800 years since Joel preached. It's been 1,990 years since Peter preached. What's taking so long? I think Peter knew that was a question. Years after he had preached that sermon, he probably had heard people saying, well, you preached the Lord was coming. Where is he? And so in Peter's second letter, he writes, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. What are we doing with this time? The Lord is not slow. He's patient. He knows that when He comes, it's judgment and renewal and He would like to see as many people in camp renewal, not in the position of judgment. And so he's, He was patient how sad it is that so many people are wasting this time and not hearing the words of, of the gospel, not repenting. But we can use this time, can't we? And the second thing we hear is that God has poured out His Spirit. Unlike the Old Testament, where you went to the temple to meet with God, and God's Spirit dwelt in the temple, and you needed priests to mediate between the Spirit of God and you, Joel said, one day you won't need any of the temple or Jerusalem. Or priests, because I'll put my spirit directly in your hearts and I'll help you repent and I'll help bring new revelation and I'll be with you personally and I'll bring a new creation and a new, new Jerusalem. And we live in that time. Joel, Joel would, would have been so delighted to have seen the day of Pentecost, to see Cairns Presbyterian Church, people filled with the Spirit given the tools to repent deeply, to rend our hearts, and the tools to share the gospel freely and with confidence. 
We live in this new covenant, a new covenant with the Spirit in our hearts, with the purpose of mission as we look forward to the day of Jesus' return. So chapter 1, a real day of locusts reminds us to repent. Chapter 2, the day of the Lord will be like locusts, but so much worse. So repent. Chapter 3, we talk about these two different groups. Punishment, paradise. That's chapter 3. Let's look at it briefly. Chapter 3 begins with Joel painting a picture of the world on trial. Nations and nation, nations upon nations are in the dock. God sits as, sits as judge, and He will judge them. Verse 14, we're in chapter 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar in roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. It's a picture of the judgment day. Christ will return and all will stand before Him. And what will happen is that He will judge those who don't know Him and He'll sentence them to a permanent, eternal place, which is unpleasant, which Jesus called hell. And hell and judgment would be the third most common topic for Jesus to preach on. Uh, The first one is God's kingdom. Jesus would speak on God's kingdom a lot. About 376 verses on God's kingdom and and heaven. Then, uh, oh sorry, on God. He's first talking about God. 376 verses on God. Second, Jesus would talk about God's kingdom. Kind of 270 verses. And third most common thing Jesus talked about was judgment and destruction and hell. He'd speak more about hell than he would about discipleship, prayer, or good work. Because he doesn't want people to be judged, and he wants us to know what's coming. And it was an unpopular message back then, and still an unpopular message. And yet I think there's hope there. Uh, When I wrote this sermon, before I felt terribly ill last week, it was a sad week. Well, it was a sad week before I got sick, and it got even sadder when I got sick. But it was a week of tragedy. I mean, I'd, I'd read the news of Hamas sending 5,000 rockets into Israel, then going in there, killing 1,200 people, beheading babies, stealing away women and children as hostages. They would execute some on Facebook Live so their family would see it. Uh, others, they'd be paraded around like trophies of war. Terrible. And now Israel is retaliating and um, we're going to see more violence. But certainly we won't see the justice of people who have lost loved ones. Hard to think that anyone who's lost a loved one in the conflict from Hamas's terrorism will ever see justice. The same week, I think it was, that Queensland changed their laws so that people charged with sex offences could be named for the first time before their court date. That was almost single-handedly done because of Ashley, Ashley Griffith, uh, the Australia's worst pedophile, charged with 1,600 cases of assaulting children from 2007 to 2022. He was finally caught. It's sick. It's sick reading. It makes you nauseous to read what he's done. That week, last week, or the week before, week when I, um, I was going to preach this, when he was in prison, a man threw boiling water on Ashley's face. Uh, he went to hospital. That's not justice, is it? That's hardly justice. Even if he's found guilty and sent to life sentences till he dies, that's not justice. Not really. Even if he had the capital punishment he, and he was executed, it's not really justice for the 1,600 assaults, the something like 91 
young girls who raped. And then I read Joel, and I'm reminded there will be justice, and he'll face every single crime. Not a single one will be missed. God will hold him accountable for everyone, and the punishment that God can inflict can be equal to the crime. Often people say, oh, I can't believe God has judgment and hell. I can't stand it. People who say that often have never suffered horrifically at the hands of others. I think you'd find it hard for someone in Ukraine, for example, to not like the idea of hell when they've suffered so terribly. Or one of those parents of those young girls who's been assaulted by this man. Praise the Lord that he will come with justice. Praise the Lord that there is hell. That people will actually pay for the inhumane things they do. They can never truly be punished in this earth. But that's half the story. The other half is paradise. Joel 3, verse 17 to 21. Let's just read 17 and 18, though. Then you'll know that I, the Lord your God, will dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine. The hills will flow with milk. The ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow from the the Lord's house and water the valley of the Acacias. It's a beautiful picture of the future, isn't it? Where there was desolation, there is now beautiful abundance. The hurt and suffering and scars of war have now healed. Now, I don't think this is the physical Jerusalem that's currently in conflict. I think this is well and truly a picture of the new creation, the new Zion, the new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven. And at the heart of the picture is an image, isn't it? End of verse 18. You see that beautiful image? A fountain will flow from the house of the Lord's house, and that, that waters the land. It's this beautiful image that from God flows life. John will later get a vision of the book of Revelation, and he will see the same thing. No surprise, really, the same God who writes both. It says this in Revelation 22. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Life flows from God. In some ways, that's the story of Joel, isn't it? Life flows from God. Sin cuts you off from that flow. And so with sin, there is no life. So repent and come back to life. Story of the Bible. Story of the Gospel. Christ allows us to be reconnected by His, his Spirit and His atonement to the, the flow of life that comes, that wells up in us. Life eternal, living water from Jesus. And so we end the book with this great picture of hope. And it's a picture not just for new creation, is it? Because right now, God offers you life. He's going to pour His Spirit out on you Fill you with the life that He gives, that you may live for Him now with abundance of peace and joy and hope. And then one day He'll take you on the day of the Lord, and He'll take you to the new city of Jerusalem. And there we'll see the the river flowing from the Lord's house, watering the land. And from there we'll know that life truly flows from God. So what we've learned today, we've learned that God brings destruction and calls for repentance. This points to the future when God will come like a mighty plague of locusts, and all will have to face Him. So repent. But for those who don't repent, there is hell, and, and yet for those who do repent in Christ, there is the new creation. A life now in God, 
and life with Him for eternity. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for this book. We, we ask that the lessons from it, though brief and fast this morning, will stick with us. The next time we see a grasshopper, we will think of the book of Joel and that we repent and be comforted that we are hidden in You and Your Son. Father, time is limited. Only You know when You will return, send Your Son to return. We ask that you will make us effective in this era of mission. You've given us your spirit. You've given us a commission. So we pray that we will make disciples of all nations. That we'll call people to repent now before it is too late. And that in your mercy, many will repent. We pray that even today, those who are distant from you, who are visiting our church or come to church and don't know you, will repent and find the joy of life in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.